0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Tracy, do you know what everyone on Earth is talking about? Is it eclipses?
1: It is. Uh, we've reached—it's it's
0: all eclipses all the
1: time. Yeah, we've we've reached the point that my mom and her sisters are talking about eclipses on our family Yahoo group, which is a, <laughs> a threshold in how many people are talking about something,
0: right? Uh, and that is, of course, because of the event that is being billed, at least in the U.S., as the Great American Eclipse, which will have happened on the same day that this episode publishes, August twenty-first, twenty seventeen. Uh, I suspect this episode will air. After the eclipse actually happened or right around it in terms of when it goes live. But um moreover, if people are into the eclipse, they're probably out watching the eclipse and not sitting somewhere listening to a podcast. I'm going
1: to tell you that's where I will be is out yeah. somewhere. I'm traveling to because we you are near the line of totality. Yeah. I am yeah. not. So yeah. we're going on a trip.
0: Yeah, we have a little officey thing planned. Um, but so for that end, we are not going to fill this with uh, warnings about how to carefully observe an eclipse. <laughs> I hope you will have gotten those before you maybe looked up. Um, but it seems like a great time to discuss some eclipses in history. There are a lot of eclipses that have been recorded through the ages. But today we're going to talk about five of them. Uh, If we leave your favorite out, our apologies. But we just wanted kind of a a sampling of eclipses and kind of their interesting points in the historical record.
1: Yeah, and to be clear, today we are talking specifically about solar eclipses when the moon passes between the Earth and the sun. And at least a portion of the sun is blocked, casting a shadow on the Earth. We are not getting into lunar eclipses when the Earth passes between the sun and the moon, which causes the moon to go dark.
0: Right. And there are four types of solar eclipse, partial, annular, total, and hybrid. And a partial eclipse occurs when the moon only obstructs a part of the sun. And this is often described as the sun looking as though there is a bite taken out of it.
1: Annular means ring-shaped. I don't know about you, Holly, but the, the eclipses that I have seen so far, aside from partial ones, have all been annular eclipses. Um which comes from the Latin word annulus. So an annual, an annular eclipse is when the moon passes in front of the center of the sun, uh, but it leaves a ring of the sun visible around the moon. And a total eclipse is when the moon is close enough to the earth that as it passes in front of the sun, the sun is completely blacked out. So there's not a sliver or a ring around the outside, as in the case of the annular eclipse. The sun's corona is still visible, though. And there is... Uh, this much talked about eclipse that's happening that the day this episode airs, which is August 21st of 2017, that is a total eclipse.
0: Yeah, sometimes, uh, I have found in it, when I was younger, it took me a long time to really grasp. (laughs) This sounds so foolish as I say it, but uh, the difference between an annular eclipse and a, a total eclipse, mm-hmm. because you still see that coronal ring on a total eclipse. And I'm like, but you can still see it. And they're like, no, you're not seeing the sun. You're seeing the light off of the sun. Right. And I'm like, but I'm seeing sunlight. And so, but it's, that's the thing. Yeah. You still
1: see light. Well, and as but- as we were planning our whole, uh, our trip. We were talking to the other folks who were going to be traveling with us. Um, And I had, I was like, okay, but I remember watching an eclipse at my elementary school. And I had to go look that up and like figure out what year was that? What was going on? It was an annular eclipse. And then I said, okay, now I also remember watching one in our yard. (laughs) Looked that one up. Also an annular eclipse. And then I was like, okay, obviously my memory is not as sharp as I would like it to be regarding what eclipses I have seen.
0: Oh, mine definitely is not. Um, and the fourth type that we mentioned, a hybrid eclipse, is one that appears to be a total eclipse from one vantage point on Earth and an annular eclipse from another point on Earth at the same time. And that has to do with where the moon is in position, in relation to your position on Earth and the position of the sun.
1: So additionally, annular, total, and hybrid eclipses will look like partial eclipses uh from positions that are outside of the path of totality, so where you are in Atlanta is near the path of totality, so we mostly covered up, yeah, uh, also, we're kind of excited about this whole eclipse situation if you cannot tell
0: uh the oldest known story of a solar eclipse also comes with a sad tale of two men who failed to predict it uh this particular event took place in China. Around twenty one thirty seven BCE, there are actually some discrepancies as to whether or not that year is accurate. Uh, writings in China from this period have described such events really quite poetically as "quote the sun and moon did not meet harmoniously."
1: So to be clear, there were eclipses before this point, but we are just talking about ones that were recorded. It was not the first sure. eclipse that I ever mean, there happened Must on have Earth. been, but yeah. <laughs> So ancient China's mythology around eclipses was that they took place when a celestial dragon was eating the sun. And in a tradition that built around the idea of scaring the dragon away to get the sun back, people would make lots of noise by banging pots together or playing drums and basically doing anything that would create the loudest sound possible. Which Sounds pretty fun. Uh,
0: the apocryphal story attached to this ancient eclipse involves two court astronomers, Ho and He. Their job was to predict any important celestial events and inform the emperor of them. And as the story goes, in this case, the emperor only learned of the eclipse event when he heard the banging noises of his people trying to frighten the mythical dragon.
1: Naturally, this failing on the part of the astronomers, who, according to legend, were drunk when they should have been doing their jobs, was met with a great deal of anger on the part of the emperor. And the story goes that they were then executed for their poor job performance. There's even a pretty unkind poem that's often cited when the story is discussed. And the poem goes, Here lie the bodies of Ho and He, whose fate, though sad, was visible, being hanged because they could not spy the clips which was invisible. I ho, tis said, a love of drink occasioned all the trouble, but this is hardly true, I think, for drunken folks see double
0: This text is unattributed, we don't know who wrote it, and it was likely almost certainly written long after the event in China by a Western author, just based on these sort of apocryphal stories of Ho and He. And this has led to this blanket assumption that these two men were incompetent. But there have been other discussions of them in the historical record and China's astronomical knowledge uh, that was done in a few different works throughout the centuries.
1: So according to Chinese annals analyzed by later astronomers, he and Ho had actually done a great deal of work on reforming the Chinese calendar through their observations and their calculations. And they had made it a lot more accurate. 18th century Englishman John
0: Jackson, after doing his own research and analysis and pulling from translations of Chinese annals as well as contemporary astronomy authors, found that accounts suggested that this eclipse, if it's the one that astronomers were pointing to, was very brief. And he wrote in 1752, quote, if the eclipse was really so small and so short, it is not to be wondered that the two astronomers, he and Ho, should not have observed it nor could any others hardly be supposed to have seen it.
1: But part of the problem is that all of this is backwards engineering an event that could have been just one of any number of possible eclipses that were referenced within ancient Chinese writings. The Jackson quote that we just mentioned is an analysis of one of those events, which may or may not have been the one that sealed the astronomers' fates. So again, that is if this whole execution story is actually true.
0: The 1891 Proceedings and Transactions of the Scientific Association includes the full text of an address that was given by the Reverend J.T. Petty about this story. And he makes the case that if you take this story at its word, it really serves as a testament to how advanced China's
1: astronomical knowledge was
0: at the time.
1: As part of his case, he says, quote, China must have been pretty well stocked with astronomers, or she could not have afforded to sacrifice two of them. Had they been the only astronomers in the empire, their lives would have been spared for future service, whatever their dereliction of duty.
0: Yeah, so those poor drunken astronomers maybe just got a bad rap. Uh, And next up, we're going to talk about Homer's Odyssey. But before we get into that, we're going to pause and have a little sponsor break. (music) was written by Homer around 800 B.C.E., but it tells the story set around 1200 B.C.E., centuries before this poem was actually conceived. And in telling the tale of Odysseus and his decade-long voyage, Homer might have recounted an eclipse that took place in 1178 B.C.E.
1: Theoclymenus, a seer character within the narrative, shares a prophecy about the doomed fate of Penelope's suitors and ends with what some people believe is a description of an eclipse. Quote, The sun has been obliterated from the sky and an an unlucky darkness invades the world. In the story that's still very much alive, Odysseus kills all of the suitors during this event.
0: In the early part of the 20th century, astronomers Carl Schock and Paul Neugebauer determined that the Ionian Islands would have seen a total solar eclipse on April 16th of 1178 BCE. And this placed it about one decade after the city of Troy was destroyed. But this idea was largely dismissed by critics who felt that there was no way that Homer could have had knowledge of such an event and written about it when it had happened several hundred years before his time.
1: But this topic was revived in 2007 when two biophysicists, Constantino Baikouzas and Marcelo O. Magnasco, used software to analyze data they collected from this text. They combed through the Odyssey and noted mentions of constellations and the positions of Venus and Mercury and the new moon, which happened the night before the prophecy. And using all of that collected data, they determined the possible dates that could have matched the descriptions in the epic poem. And they're
0: Match was, drumroll please, April 16th, 1178. But even in their paper, which was published in 2008, by Kuzis and Magnasco are very clear that it would be amazing and not terribly likely if Homer knew about this event. They wrote, quote, The main implausibility in the conclusions is that they imply that the author of the lines in question was First, interested in advanced astronomy, at a time when there were no traces left that the Greek had an interest in it beyond calendrical purposes, and in possession of detailed astronomical data of events happening perhaps five centuries before him.
1: This paper goes on to discuss the indications that Homer was interested in, dis- in astronomy and then examines various improbable but not impossible means by which the knowledge of a historical eclipse could have made its way into his sphere of knowledge. But they acknowledge that it's really hard, a really hard case to prove. And they conclude with, quote, much research is needed before we can move beyond such speculations. We can only modestly hope to convince other scholars that the case against Shoke's eclipse may have been too hastily closed, and just inspire them to ponder if the remarkable coincidence described in this paper may in fact not be coincidental at all
0: and to be clear, they have definitely had detractors like they have they have had people write uh, response papers that are criticizing all of this, but it's an interesting idea to think about. the next eclipse that we're going to talk about happened in eighteen thirty six uh, so on may fifteenth eighteen thirty six there was an annular eclipse that crossed over the United Kingdom in its totality. And during this particular event,
1: a characteristic of eclipses was identified and named for its observer, Francis Bailey. Francis Bailey was a British astronomer who had been born in 1774. And initially, he had gone into business and done quite well for himself. But at the age of 51, he retired from his work on the London Stock Exchange and writing books about annuities to instead devote his time to science. That charms me a lot.
0: Me too. Uh, but this really wasn't like an out-of-the-blue shift for him. It's not like he said, okay, business time over. Now I'm going to think about the, the night sky. He had actually been interested in science and astronomy for quite some time. And in 1820, which was five years before he left his finance work, he had been a driving force behind the formation of the Royal Astronomical Society. And in the founding of that society, which aimed to promote research in astronomy, he was among colleagues such as John Herschel and Charles Babbage. For the
1: 1836, 1836- Eclipse Bailey wanting to see it at its best advantage traveled to Scotland and the weather on the day of the event was excellent the sky was cloudless and Bailey's experience was relayed in a December 9th 1836 proceeding of the Royal Astronomical Society as he had spoken about it at their meeting and this is
0: kind of long but it's a relaying of what he saw so uh bear with us on this lengthy quote After a brief discourse on uh, Bailey's position and setup to watch the eclipse, this account in the proceedings reads, quote, he says he was in expectation of meeting with something extraordinary at the formation of the annulus, but imagined it would only be momentary and consequently that it would not interrupt the noting of the time of its occurrence. In this, however, he was deceived, as the following facts will show. For, when the cusps of the sun were about 40 degrees asunder, a row of lucid points, like a string of beads, irregular in size and distance from each other, suddenly formed round that part of the circumference of the moon that was about to enter on the sun's disk. This he intended to note as the correct time of the formation of the annulus, expecting every moment to see the ring of light completed round the moon and attributing this serrated appearance of the moon's limb, as others had done before him, to the lunar mountains. Although the remaining portion of the moon's circumference was perfectly smooth and circular, as seen through the telescope. He was somewhat surprised, however, to find that these luminous points, as well as the dark intervening spaces, increased in magnitude, some of the contiguous ones appearing to run into one another like drops of water. Finally, as the moon pursued her course, these dark intervening spaces were stretched out into long black thick parallel lines joining the limbs of the sun and the moon. When all at once they suddenly gave way and left the circumference of the sun and the moon in those points as in all the rest apparently smooth and circular and the moon perceptibly advanced on the face of the sun.
1: After the moon had crossed Over the center of the sun, Bailey observed another surprise. According to his account, quote, All at once, a number of long, black, thick, parallel lines, exactly similar in appearance to the former ones mentioned, suddenly darted forward and joined the two limbs as before, and the same phenomena were repeated but in inverse order. So he witnessed the lines terminating in a curved line of bright beads, which vanished as the annulus ended. The formation of the beads was witnessed by other astronomers as well, several of which Bailey consulted with.
0: And Bailey was right. It's the lunar geography that causes these beads to form as the sun outlines the valleys and peaks on the moon's surface. Uh, incidentally, when only one bead is visible, this is called a diamond ring effect because you kind of see the a little uh, corona of light and then one bright spot. So it kind of looks like a sparkly ring. And though other astronomers did observe this happening, the bead effect is named for Bailey. And while observing eclipses after the one in May of 1836, astronomers continued to look for Bailey's beads as hallmarks of the eclipse process.
1: Today, photos of eclipses are readily available in books and online, but that certainly was not always the case. So in a moment, we are going to talk about the first photo of an eclipse. But first, we will pause for a word from a sponsor.
0: On July 28, 1851, there was a total eclipse uh, with the totality over Prussia. And this particular eclipse is noteworthy because in preparation for the event, the director of the Royal Observatory in Konigsberg
1: hired a photographer to capture it. Johann Julius Friedrich Burkowski was a skilled daguerreotypist, and he was the man the observatory reached out to. Burkowski used a small refracting telescope in conjunction with a heliometer, which is a telescope designed for measuring the apparent diameter of the sun and for measuring angles between celestial bodies or points on the lunar surface. He took an 84-second exposure once the eclipse's totality began. And what
0: resulted was the first successful photo of a solar eclipse, which included the visual capture of prominences emanating from the sun's surface. And this image is tiny. Uh, it's one of those things when you think about a photograph, and especially if you've seen it online or in books, you think of, like, photograph size, like a 4 by 6 This thing is little, little. It's way smaller than that. Uh, the moon on the original plate was only 7.85 millimeters in diameter. And while the director of the observatory initially wrote about the groundbreaking photo without crediting Burkowski, eventually the photographer slash daguerreotypist made his own prints
1: from his plate. These prints were slightly enlarged, but still quite small. As a point of reference, the moon's diameter in these prints was 8.69 millimeters. One of these prints still exists and is in the collection of the Jena University Observatory in Jena, Germany.
0: Another set of prints from Berkowski's plates was ordered by German astronomer Carl Friedrich Wilhelm Peters in 1891. And copies of the Peters prints would go on to be used in textbooks and other publications.
1: Today, you can easily find Burkowski's iconic photograph online, and there are even some images of a human hand holding a framed print to illustrate how little this groundbreaking photograph is.
0: Yeah, with the frame included, we're talking like a couple inches that someone can just hold between their thumb and forefinger. It's very small. The last eclipse that we'll talk about is one that's come to be known as Einstein's eclipse. It took place on May 29th of 1919. And several years prior to this eclipse, Einstein had published his now famous general theory of relativity. Uh For very broad strokes, the crux of the theory is that space can be curved by the influence of gravity of any body with mass. And this was at odds with Newton's Principia, which we have talked about on the podcast before, and which established mathematical rules that applied to celestial motion and was more static and did not take into account something like a gravity bend.
1: Sir Frank Watson Dyson, astronomer royal of Britain, began to think about the possibility of testing the theory by observing light. If gravity could distort space, then light passing through that space would also curve. But our sun is so bright that we can't really see the way other stars' light might be bent by the sun's gravity. And this led him to realize that the darkness of the sun as viewed from Earth during an eclipse would offer an opportunity to observe light bending as it approached the sun's edge, if Einstein's theory was correct. And
0: side note, you might be wondering if photographs of previous eclipses in the decades since Burkowski's first daguerreotype would have offered any evidence. But this bend in light is seriously slight. The photographs at that point were not of good enough quality to detect such a change, which really can only be analyzed with really quite precise measurement.
1: Once it was determined the eclipse would be the testing ground, another British astrophysicist, Arthur Stanley Eddington, led the test. In the first two months of 1919, he measured the position of the stars that the sun would be passing in front of during the predicted May eclipse. For the eclipse itself, he traveled to an island off of Africa's western coast. And at the same time, he dispatched another team of astronomers to Brazil to take measurements. And this was for coverage in the event that the island had cloud cover on May the 29th. But as it turned out, both locations had a clear view of the eclipse, so there were two separate sets of measurements to use.
0: The eclipse lasted for six minutes during its totality, and both teams took photos throughout that brief time. And after the eclipse ended, Eddington gathered all the information and went back to England and spent the next several months analyzing it.
1: Eddington's findings, which were announced on November 6, 1919, vindicated Einstein and proved that his general theory of relativity was correct. While there were certainly detractors who suspected that Eddington had somehow falsified the data to support Einstein, This is literally the moment that made Einstein famous. On November 7th, he was front-page news, and suddenly the German-born physicist was the global poster child for genius. Measurements taken during eclipses after 1919 continued to back up Einstein's theory and Eddington's findings.
0: Yeah, which is really cool. I did, uh, somehow I missed that growing up, that piece of information that it was really an eclipse that, uh, made Einstein famous. Yeah. In my head, he because he's such a famous figure, I think in my head he just people are like, "Wow, this is an amazing theory. <laughs> You're smart." <laughs> I, I never think of him as being, you know, having detractors, but of course he did. And that's it, just my weird uh take on it but uh yeah so those are a few stories of eclipses in history uh as we said there are many many more i think the next eclipse doesn't happen until 2024 yeah so if we're still doing this podcast in seven years we can do another (laughs) or just if we want to talk about eclipses at some point between now and then we could do an eclipse survey episode and talk about a few
1: more We might talk about lunar eclipses people don't get as excited about Lunar eclipses, uh. Yeah.
0: Cause they're like, it's already dark. So the darkening <laughs> of the moon isn't quite as dramatic, even though it's very cool. And you can sometimes get like a blood moon, yeah. which is amazing. Um, yeah, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, but they're fascinating. I hope if everybody listening watched it, whether in person or online or some other way, one, I hope anybody that actually watched it in person was very careful with their vision.
1: And with no. their camera, don't and just your camera? Like point your camera at the sun. No, there are so many things you have
0: to, <laughs> have to be careful with. Uh So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you, uh you know, missed it, the good news is we live in an information age where it's all going to be online instantly.
1: Hooray. Yeah. So do you have some listener mail
0: for us? I do. I have a correction and then a gift mail. So we got, a, <laughs> I feel super stupid, but I'll explain my stupidity my um blind spot in knowledge oh. which was a pleasant blind spot to have and then it went
1: away i think and i now know i wish i, I, I could I have referencing
0: mats. yeah 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 so when we did the sipoy mutiny sometimes called the rebellion sometimes also called a, a freedom movement uh we talked about one of the punishments of the uh indian resistors on the part of the british empire was to shoot them from cannons but that's not correct it's so much grosser. And several people wrote us, and we're like, no, oh, you didn't get this right. In my defense, the way it is written, and I'm going to read one of the accounts that describes it. If you don't know what it is, that is a fairly reasonable way to place to land in your head. Um, I'm reading a, a piece written by Douglas Pierce about it. Uh, and I didn't, in my little note that I wrote here, I didn't cite the book it came from, so my apologies. But it says, quote, The fear of spiritual debasement came full circle for the mutineers. The British deliberately defiled rebel sipoys that were caught. Some were blown from cannon. Some Hindus were smeared with cow fat before they were hanged. Some Muslim rebels were forced to chew pig fat. Uh, So blown from cannon, to my mind, meant blown from a cannon. But that's not what blown from cannon means. Uh, what it actually means is that the person, this is so horrifying, so I apologize for those of you that also would have liked to maintain that blind spot. Um, it, the person is strapped to a cannon while it is shot and the resulting force causes dismemberment and the body in terms of religious matters is defiled and it prevents the proper administration of religious funeral rites for Hindus and Muslims. So, uh, really, really gross. But important distinction to make. So thank you to all the people that wrote in and mentioned that. Uh, and then to bring it up, because that's a terrible note to land on, uh, <laughs> I have a wonderful gift that we got from our listener, Kaylee. And She sent us some really fun jewelry, which she describes herself in her note. She says, hello, I'm a big fan of the show. I have ADHD, so it's great to listen to you while I'm working on crafts. Speaking of which, one of my crafts is chainmail, and I wanted to make you guys some pieces. The gold one is a tribute to Holly's laughter because there is nothing that makes my day brighter than hearing such full laughter or an amused tittering at the ridiculousness of history. The purple bracelet is a weave called Byzantine. And the silver piece I dedicated, which is a little cuff, I dedicate to Tracy's sigh. The pursing of lips <laughs> that could almost... is so good. She's so great. Um, the pursing of lips that could almost be a smirk as she knows she's about to drop a knowledge bomb that will blow everyone's minds wide open. Um so- it's so cool. Like, what an amazing honor and delight to have an artist, you know, memorialize our behaviors in in jewelry form. And then she has a little suggestion for a topic, but she says lots of love, Kaylee. Oh, my gosh, that is so sweet and thoughtful and amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kaylee. Those are fantastic and just such a delight and put a huge smile on my face as I read your card this morning. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at houseofworks dot com. You can also visit us across the spectrum of social media. Uh, we are missed in history pretty much everywhere. That includes Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest. Uh, you can visit us at our homepage, which is MissedInHistory.com, and see every episode of the show that's ever happened from way back in the beginning, long before Tracy and I were attached to it, uh, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on. Uh, if you would like to visit our parent site, you can do that. That is housedoveworks.com If you type in the word Eclipse... Uh, In the search bar, you're going to get a recent article that was written called Three Times Total Eclipses Influenced World History. We only have one overlap eclipse with that article, so you'll get some new knowledge if this whetted your appetite. But we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.